Hi guys and welcome to Q&A episode four. I am here with Mr. Luke Hoffman. Luke, how are you? I am very good. Very excited that Cal has finally changed his name. See, our physique has finally evolved. Yeah. It's emotional times. It's awesome times. Um, So yeah, if you're tagging CR Physique, nothing will happen. So hit me up at Callum underscore the muscle mentors from now on. Um, I hope you've all been enjoying the episode dropped on, what day was it? Uh, What day do we record with Will? Thursday. Thursday. That's been pretty cool with the feedback so far. Um, And again, we'll definitely try and get him on again because I know Luke did have quite a exciting time with him didn't you Luke yeah what a legend yeah he's, he's a cool guy he's a cool guy um we've got a bunch of questions that we're going to run through um here and again we'll try and keep this to 45 minutes I think that's probably the sweet spot for Q&A type episodes so um we will run through them pretty swiftly and get some um nuggets over to you following the questions um, what was the, just read through the estrogen related question, Luke. Okay. So this is from Sarah and, um, she said, you and Cal mentioned in your last Q and a podcast about fat storage sites. I don't actually remember that, but anyway, <laughs> I don't either, but we'll go with it. <laughs> Do fat storage site, uh, fat storage sites depict differing issues. For instance, I've previously heard that back fat can be associated with estrogen a, is that the case? And B, what do other storage sites tell tales of? So I think this is going to come down to the classic biosig-esque thought process, um, which obviously gave you some form of system to work with in regards to here's an issue, now we've got a solution through some form of dietary protocol or supplement, which is handy. Um, but like if we break that down, I think a lot of the, like the general premise behind a lot of those principles probably do have some logical thought, thought, thought process behind them and do have some form of literature behind them. Um, it's just, it is a, it is a very iffy subject saying it definitively when we look at fat loss, because we know that every single case is going to be slightly more individualistic in terms of them as a, as a client or them as an individual. And we look at like total allostatic load, when we look at stress, when we look at lifestyle, when we look at how long they've been dieting, do they simply need to lose more body fat to get rid of these so-called stubborn, uh, stubborn fat storage patterns? Um, like I, I know Luke will agree with me in, in regards to estrogen, and estrogen is not the enemy by any means, um, and it is something that's you know it's going to be essential for both both males and females. Females from a, a menstrual perspective. Um, and from a performance perspective and males, obviously, um, when we balance the steroid hormone pathway, we're going to need those guys to stay active, um, for, for general health as well. Um, now when we look at women, especially females with, uh, potential estrogen irregularities, we're not necessarily looking at that from like a, a global scale, just thinking, right, we've got, we've got too much. We've got an excess and we've got an abundance. It's more so figuring out when we look further down the chain or up the chain, so to speak, um, like what is causing that variability in hormonal profile. And for the most part with estrogen, we're looking at phase one and two liver detoxification and our ability to actually get what we need out 
and then keep what else is left that we need to circulate around the body in. Um, I know Luke's found some research on detoxification, but from, from my side, when we look at females and estrogen, we're going to look at um, potential implications that overall stress load is going to have on uh, estrogen and, and serotonin pathway and, and stress as well from a cortisol perspective. Estrogen and cortisol are going to interact with each other. Um, potential gut issues and the state of the microbiome. And obviously the big one for females is going to be, is going to be the liver. So before we look at, right, we've got like stuff, we've got stubborn body fat on our legs. Or we've got stubborn body fat on our, I think Sarah said she read somewhere it was, you know, storage patterns on the lower back. Um, instead of looking at, right, I'm going to add in, I'm going to add in alpha venus by ATP science, or I'm going to add in something to improve detoxification. Let's look at overall nutrition first. Let's look at lifestyle factors. Let's look at stress. Let's look at sleep. And once all those variables are ticked off, then we've probably got more, more room for thought in regards to actually delving deeper. But until we've actually covered those aspects, we're like, we've got no right to delve into anything because we haven't, we're not doing the basics right. From a, a literature perspective, like estrogen generally in, in, in literature, or we, we pull this up if you want to, um, increases the number of alpha adrenal receptors in the lower body for women. So when we look at glutes, when we look at hamstrings, when we look at quads, and alpha receptors at the fat cell are gonna to start to slow fatty acid release. Um, so the whole notion behind women having, uh, behind women having like gynoid or pear shaped fat storage distributions, women are gonna have around nine times more um, alpha adrenal receptors in the lower body than men do. So it would start to indicate why that potentially is the, is in the case when we look at storage patterns. Um, and some evidence is going to hint that when estrogen levels are higher, that activity of alpha adrenal receptors is suggesting that um, potentially we can, the whole notion of time training in the, within the menstrual cycle, the areas where estrogen is low during the menstrual cycle may speed up fatty acid release um, from those so-called stubborn estrogen impacted areas like the lower body. Um, Luke, what was the, the study that you just pulled up before we joined on the call? Oh, yeah. So it wasn't strictly a study. It's an article by um, Michael McAvoy, who's an absolute wizard when it comes to the biochemistry of the body. Um, but, I mean, I can, I can read out an excerpt. Should I do that? Yeah, drop it. Basically, it just kind of puts to bed the... Like where estrogen is is problematic and where it's not, but um, so he's a uh, you know so it starts off estrogen dominance is a term that has been used to describe the overload of estrogen, um, and then skip, I'll skip on a bit. But he says the term estrogen dominance is actually outdated because not all estrogens are the same. Some estrogens, such as estrogen, can actually be protective and anti-cell proliferative. Another estrogen, estriol E3, is very weak and actually possesses numerous therapeutic benefits. Other estrogens, such as 2-hydroxy, yield no cell proliferating or cancer-inducing effects and may actually inhibit abnormal endometrial growth. Um, and this is contrasted against powerful hydroxy estrogens, such as the 4-OH and 16-OHs, Unlike the two estrogens and estriol, the 4 and 16 hydroxy estrogens exert very strong cell proliferative effects. 4 hydroxyestrone uh, and estradiol are very reactive estrogens. These are highly prone to the formation of catechol estrogen derived 3,4 semiquinones, 
which are potent electrophilic free radical generating molecules that have been shown to lead to DNA mutagenesis. Um, indeed, 4-hydroxy E1 and E2 are the most potent and potentially carcinogenic estrogens. So essentially, what you're saying is it, it comes down to whether you're, you know, you're producing the right amount of the, of the right estrogens and, and, or an excessive amount of the wrong ones and how your ability to how how good your ability to get them out of your body is and that like Callum said that comes back to phase one and phase two liver detoxification and um with regard like the main thing to look at there is basically phase two i mean the, the, that's simplifying it a bit but once you're um well basically you require an enzyme in phase two liver detoxification called comt um, that um, basically works within a process called methylation to get um, alongside magnesium and a molecule called SAM, SAM, um, to basically turn some of these forms of estrogen into water-soluble forms so you can get them out of your body. So, and it's basically like, obviously, it is oversimplifying it, but you're going to see a lot of people with an, an imbalance in certain types of estrogen because this phase two liver detoxification of estrogen isn't running as well as it should. And that whether that's from an impaired, um, you know, like low magnesium levels or an impaired ability to actually run methylation, which could come from an inadequate amount of B vitamins, such as B12 and stuff like that. So, it, you know, there's a lot of things that um, can go wrong there. But it, it, like you've then got to boil down it's the fact of like why would someone have low levels of magnesium and B vitamins, and that will probably again come back to because they're stressed as fuck. <laughs> so it's like you know if if someone you know and that's where like these things like biostig can go wrong, and they kind of miss the forest for the trees in the, in the sense of that they zone in too too much on the one issue of like oh they've got you know so and so is coming back with high levels of estrogen, I'm going to give them something to help them detoxify estrogen. But if you don't get to the reason as to why they're not able to do run that process properly in the first place, you're, you're going to, you're going to have an issue. Mm. I think following on from that, when you look at the role of like stress on the, on the nervous system, stress and uh, sympathetic load or sympathetic dominance is going to impact progesterone production. When we look at estrogen and progesterone, we need a balance as they both almost enhance each other, the actions of each other, um, as well as offset the action of each other if they are out of whack. So estrogen dominance is a term um, used like from a medical perspective where estrogen has a greater action than progesterone. When we look at estrogen, estrogen dominance as a term, this refers to the, like the relative deficiency of progesterone compared to estrogen within that tissue, whether they're both high, low, or relatively normal. So if we're getting a suppression of progesterone, then we're technically referring to them as being estrogen dominant, even if it is only quite acute, if that makes sense. So the, 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 the big player there would be like, there may not actually be an issue with, with, this so-called estrogen dominant state is actually looking at right what the, the impact stress and sympathetic load is having on the rest of the the pathway. We solve the stress at the, the root cause, and then things start to fucking solve. Yeah, but I mean, like in in the so I think where it comes down to like if you're gonna if you're dealing with someone who has 
your suspected estrogen dominance or some issue with detoxifying estrogen, you you the testing things you'd want to implement would be probably, I mean, I would preference getting a Dutch test, yeah, because um, you you'd like you'd be able to measure them in in urinary, you know, urine like that, yeah, in their water soluble form, so you'd be able to see the metabolites they're excreting that we won't get in blood, um, and then it it would be a case of you. I mean, with women, it meant, you know, getting them to eat more things like flax seeds, things like berries, um, like certain citrus fruits that are all going to help with phase two liver detoxification and like kind of provide a lot of the um, building blocks for a lot of the enzymes involved in that. Um, and then including more cruciferous vegetables in their diet, provided they don't have any underlying gut issues that will kind of lead to uh, an inability to deal with sulfur and stuff like that but um and then certain supplements like dim methane, stuff like that um liposomal glutathione i mean like you you can go in but again it's like you can hit someone with four or five different supplements or you could clean up their diet and get them to start implementing stress management techniques and you probably find that things improve far better yeah i mean that's what i do agreed um i think gone well as you say there is a place for supplements but i think it should be a last resort and you know to all the biostig guys out there use it as a last resort don't jump straight to it yeah sort the diet out first before we give them a 500 pound supplement bill that's like the, the muscle nerds, you know, the, those guys have said it before, say it, and we'll say it here, like lifestyle first, then diet, then supplements. But, yeah. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Uh, I think there's a little bit on um, storage, storage patterns with like looking at stress and cortisol and um, storage patterns, fat wolf. Adipose storage patterns, fat storage from um, irregular or heightened cortisol profiles. Um, I think you probably need to differentiate the the like the negative connotation cortisol has because it is like we we need cortisol. Cortisol is a an ally when it's when it's in range when it's being used and um to our advantage almost but when that is out of whack then it's going to start to fight back just like anything else so um like that fight or flight stress response you know heart rate, heart rate elevates um you know say you're doing a, a moderately intense aerobic conditioning session um you know any form of exercise where we're going to get some form of release of that those hormones are going to start to raise stress response but it's being done in an acute manner and it's controlled um and we're dissembling triglycerides there and increasing the ability for us to free fatty acids to mobilize but when you look at this concept there was a book that we spoke about earlier where it looked at fight or flight and then there was like a third option which was defeat and this defeat starts to connotate like it's basically representing chronic stress chronic sympathetic dominance where somebody's always in that red zone um like hrv 
completely screwed, resting heart rate completely screwed. Um, and that defeat pathway of somebody spending long periods of time in that, you know, it's going to lead to enhanced lipogenesis, which would be the creation of fat, um, potential visceral um, storage patterns. So deep abdominal obesity, uh, breakdown of tissues, so cat- catabolism and the suppression of the immune system. So you're going to be, you're going to be running on not much um, vital reserve at all. So the whole point of stress management being like one of the most integral things to health, body composition, performance, recovery. Like we always talk about Luke's, you know, constantly on about plant-based foods and nutrition. We're constantly on about sleep. We're constantly on about stress uh, management and and these practices that we can do day to day that are very, very simple because they solve so many issues. Like it's not us just being anal and saying it is if you look deep down at this, you can get a lot more complicated, but a lot of it all comes back to doing the basics very, very well. Yeah, absolutely. That was awesome. Um, okay. What was the next question, dude? <clears throat> Let me... That was. Um, so. So James has asked, um, my question is, is there a change in mechanics if one limb is longer than the other? For instance, left leg is shorter than right leg. I know this, this could be down to potential problems such as hip deviation. That would be a cool question to answer. So let's answer that one as if there wasn't hip deviation. As if there wasn't? Yeah, so like, let's assume like you've got someone who genuinely has a limb shorter than the other, which is pretty common. Yeah. So for me, it would just be looking at where, 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 where force is being created, where the line of force is, where the load is, and how far that is away from the axis at hand, whether it's lower or upper body. Exactly. And that, that's pretty much it. Like The longer the limb, generally in every case, the bigger the moment arm is going to be to you know one end of that joint so like but it, it depends on the lip so you've got someone with like let's say that individual had their left tibia their left lower leg was longer than their right lower leg in there you put them in a leg extension scenario that um that that left leg that left quad with the longer tibia is probably going to be doing a little bit more um, if you were to do it unilaterally and like set it up and you know adjust the pad down a little bit for that left leg, you you, you would have a, a greater amount of torque requirement at that left knee, which means the knee extensors would do more. Similarly, you have someone with a left femur that's longer than the right one, marginally, it may, might mean that the guys around their left hip are going to have to do more if they were in like a squatting scenario. And that could in turn, you know, contribute to something like a hip deviation in the long run. Um, and then again, yeah, you, you have someone in like a, a pressing scenario with dumbbells and they've got uh, a humerus on their right, their right arm that's longer than their left, like that right pec is potentially going to have to produce a bit more force, which you do that for long enough and you might see some imbalance forming. Um, but I, I personally have like my left forearm is actually reason you know significantly shorter than my right one, um, because I broke my um, my left arm twice throughout my my younger years, so it's kind of impacted that growth, and then as a result, my 
the amount of growth I've been able to achieve through my biceps and triceps on my left arm is, is slightly behind my right arm because there's different lever lengths basically. So it does happen. It's an interesting question though. Yeah, it is, yeah. Yeah. I mean there's I mean, is there anything else to say on that? Probably not. No, I think you nailed it. Like it's worth taking into consideration, but it's probably something that people overlook, isn't it? Yeah. But I d I don't think you you'll ever have to do a hell of a lot and there might not be a lot you can do. Like you you, you know, if you have someone with with certain you you might it might pay to train them more unilaterally, but if it's a minor difference, it might not make much of a difference at all. All, all I'd say is if it's if that was something relatively significant, then you'd want to favour more unilateral work, wouldn't you? Yeah. Because you could just make the make the challenge specific to the joint or whatever at hand. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Do you want the next one? Yeah, go on, shout. You can say this one. Which one is it? Um, so you said... Currently do my own programming and want to use a deadlift variation, most likely Dorian's, because I've never tried them. How are how do you decide to place deadlifts within a program? For example, do you use it on a back day? Um, I I would I presume this to be most likely a rack pull or a higher pull variant, or on a lower body day, sumo or hex bar, for example. Just wondering your thoughts on the matter. I think deadlift wise, but we're gonna we're gonna be talking about something hip dominant. So a lot of posterior recruitment, glutes, hamstrings, um, relative to where the knee and the hip is during that movement. But for me, if it was if it was something anywhere like in the mid range of hip flexion or slightly below, then we're going to be placing that in a lower body session because um, we're not going to be getting much from the upper body there in regards to recruitment. Um, when it when we look at actual loading, so like, uh, like from an upper body perspective, I don't really program much of it in now. But um, you could use some form of rack pull or block pull where you're being more specific about the ranges you're spending time in, and potentially you're you're placing more intent into lats or mid back or whatever you want to place intent into. Or uh, like, have you? We could use some form of um, like manipulating the profile of the exercise with bands, um, whether that's coming, you know up and down or even whether that's coming like horizontally and the line of force is coming coming into you and you're retracting against the bands as you're pulling that could potentially recruit more through the tissues in the upper body but for the most part if it's a deadlift whether that's conventional or sumo that guy's going to go in a lower body session yeah 100% agree it's like if you if you consider the amount of like changes occurring all those joints like everything up the spine is going to be holding it in isometric and that's what you need it to do um so you kind of want those guys to be strong so if you put them at the end on a back then you just smash those guys in some you know they've had to do a lot in previous rowing movements and then you decide to deadlift you're potentially compromising how much you get out of your hips and then your um the guys that are doing most of the lifting are the guys around your hips so it pays to put them on a lower body day and then um, but you, I mean, you can look at it in two ways. Like I prefer like how to put them on a lower body day because you get the fact that you can then stimulate your back musculature and trunk musculature as like a secondary effect, and like so it's, so it's kind of 
a nice way to just hit two birds with one stone, but you could use that same reasoning and say, oh, I'll put it on my back day because I can hit my glutes and stuff there as well. It's just a bit, it's, it's, I, I just don't personally think it's necessary and nor effective as a back movement. And a lot of people looking for like lat recruitment on a deadlift. I mean, like, yes, you're training some element of glenohumeral extension, but it's nothing crazy um, unless you go like snatch grip. And that actually is pretty decent, but fucking disgusting as well. It's horrific. If you're not strong enough through your directors and, and expenses, then that would be. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it's a case of you can put them really where you want back day, lower back, or, or lower day. Um, you just want to make sure you're um, the guys doing most of the lifting, the guys around your hips. Mm. And it's like when we were speaking before we got on the call, when people use a 45 degree hip extension or some people call it a 45 degree back extension you put if you see that in your program and you're you've written 45 degree back extension but you're queuing you're, you're wanting them someone to use their hips but you've written back extension you're kind of already on a on some psychological level suggesting that they should be feeling it in their back and you want you on a 45 degree hip extension unless you're trying to train spinal extension exclusively you're, you're going to be training your hips the guys around your hips and working through hip extension so call it a hip extension and you know on a deadlift you don't really ever want to feel it in your lower back but if you put it on a back day some people will go in thinking it's good that they're feeling a deadlift in their lower back and it's like probably not like it, I think from a just in terms of teaching someone about where they should be feeling it, simply putting a deadlift on a lower body day isn't a bad idea. Yeah. That's a personal thing. Yeah, I agree. I even think like from the perspective of looking at deadlift variations for um, trying to place more intent through the hamstrings, like it takes very, someone very, very advanced to actually make a, a hamstring specific um, deadlift variation through that, through that range. Like you'd be more, you'd be more of benefit working through a 45 degree back extension where you've got something to, to brace against and actually apply intent into. Like for me personally, when I, when I deadlift or deadlift with clients, like I'll only cue glutes because the hamstrings are going to work anyway. Yeah. Exactly. Nice. Um, okay. Nice. I yeah, actually, one, one thing that would be cool to talk about is uh, manipulating um, the positioning of like the knee in extension or more flexion to create a greater degree of um, output through the glutes. Yeah. So, like creating more knee flexion to make it more hip dominant for the glutes. So wait, wait what's, the, what's the question? So one of, somebody asked creating a hamstring dominant or um, a glute dominant hip hinge deadlift variation and the positioning of the knee impacting recruitment so having more of an extended knee and a flex knee and obviously looking at the moment arm between the hip yeah it's like the, the straight the, the it's basically the further you can get your knee from the bar like the line of force um the more work the guys around your knee will do which in this instance will be we'll be looking at the hamstrings and then the, the more of uh, knee flexion you generate and the further you can push your hips back away from the bar, the more around the hips and the hamstrings will still do something there as well. Um, I, I, th I think personally, 
it's safer to to kind of generate a bit more knee flexion, push the hips back, and kind of focus on those guys. Much easier to cue as well, isn't it? Yeah, I think, and again, it comes back to you have to be pretty damn advanced to uh, to be able to like generate a lot of force through your hamstrings on a on a like a, an RDL or something like that or deadlift variation. But then it can be valuable. It's just like it not only pays to be very advanced um, and very careful, but you, it also pays to have pretty meaty hamstrings that have a pretty decent internal moment arm. But, um, and a lot of people with not a lot of hamstring meat, that's going to be quite hard to come by. Yeah. The guys that go, why can't I feel my hamstrings when I did it? Like, because you don't have any. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. All right, good. Question answered. Next. So... Question for the Q&A, uh, despite being a natural hormone when supplementing melatonin, can you build up a tolerance to it? And if so, like caffeine, would taking a break from it bring it back down to baseline? Firstly, I just want to say, you know, no supplemental form of a hormone is going to be natural. Yeah. Like, you know, people supplementing testosterone, like that's, that's not natural. That's synthetic. Like, so you're always going to have that. But um, yeah, I mean, you 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 pulled, you pulled out some good stuff from this, didn't you? Um, let me bring it up now. But while Cal's finding that, I'm just going to say there hasn't been a ton of long-term studies on supplemental melatonin, so we don't officially know like what's what the the repercussions will be of long-term use. There's a lot of logic, you know, and like people will say, you take any synthetic form of, of a particular hormone and it will downregulate your body's production of that hormone we know that's the case with steroids we know that's the case with um things like thyroid hormone and stuff like that so you know it can happen um but i think melatonin personally i think the way it's synthesized like you produce it from serotonin i think as long as you have a pool of serotonin which most of the time you will, and only in extreme circumstances you won't. I think you your body should synthesize it. Um, but that is not a very informed opinion because I haven't dug into this particular thing massively. So, um, fun fact the median lethal dose of melatonin at which a human would die has never been reached in any setting. Yeah, I think there isn't a. Uh, I, I saw that. Um, no, there's no. Um, never been a case of overdose or anything like that. So just on tolerance, it just says tolerance to the effects of exogenous melatonin is slowly built after prolonged and repeated usage, and it gives a time frame of twelve months, so quite a long time. Um, after that, it takes about seven days for the tolerance to be reduced by fifty percent and a 14-day period for the tolerance to be returning to baseline um, in the absence of further consumption, so you're not taking any for that 14-day period. Melatonin presents cross-tolerance with no other known compounds, meaning that after the use of melatonin, other psychoactive compounds will not have a reduced effect. So given the indication that you will build up a tolerance, but over a very long period of time, it doesn't specify the dosages that you would build up a tolerance to, um, and it seems to suggest that 
it would be quite quick for you to uh, mitigate that tolerance by just simply removing it for a period of time and then re reintroducing it. Yeah, I mean, I know I've seen before as well. Some people have you know hypothesised that people that supplement with the pineal uh, with melatonin will cause it like their pineal gland to shrink. Um, in the same way, like in the case of testosterone and stuff like that, you can cause your testes to shrink. But there's again absolutely no evidence for that happening, and that's also um, kind of assuming that the pineal gland secretes only melatonin, but it doesn't. It secretes a ton of other things. So it's like that melatonin is like one thing it does, and it's, it's slightly different to other areas, which is why to fully disrupt and prevent melatonin secretion, you've got to do something, I think, pretty substantial that I don't think supplementing with it will will achieve. Yeah. Right, yeah. I agree. Yeah. Well, can they call for, uh, just talk about, um, you know, we're talking about uh, intravenous use of melatonin to treat cancer. Yeah, I, mean, I haven't dug into it massively. But, but just purely from like the, the powerful antioxidant nature of it. Yeah, it's, and like that's the thing. Like melatonin is, you know, is arguably, I mean, glutathione tends to be touted as like the master antioxidant. Melatonin is a pretty damn amazing one too. Um, and it's the only, uh, it's the only hormone that can um, like mitigate cortisol's effects at a neural level in the brain, so it has some pretty crazy effects. There's like, like some evidence out there suggesting like a lack of or lower levels of melatonin have been linked to um, things like Alzheimer's and dementia and stuff, which is like by because one of cortisol's actions is going to be like um, atrophying the hippocampus, which will affect memory um, and um, and like people with uh, inadequate levels of melatonin it seems to be that that it gets accelerated um but um i, I think like down like they make make <laughs> there's a lot of uh, what's the word i'm looking for um logic to think that melatonin play where well, it does has been found to play a huge role in preventing cancer and stuff like that but i haven't dug enough into into the like intravenous administration of it to to give an answer on it, but we can, and we will. Yeah, it's cool stuff. But basically, I think supplementing melatonin isn't something people should be afraid of. And if you've got a really fucked up circadian rhythm, doing it temporarily to re-establish one can actually be really beneficial. Yeah, which we've seen with clients. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. So I don't know how we're doing with time, uh, but I just just came across this question, which is a really good one. Um, if you could only learn off one expert in each field you guys are interested in for the rest of your life, who would you pick? Gut, biomechanics, physiology, strength training, programming, business, etc. One guy in each field. Fucking hell. That's a good question. I like that. It's like, like off topic. You go. Collectively, just uh, subscribe to the Muscle Mentors. You'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> what, 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 tip, what topics are we going then? So, so gut. Can we go gut first? 
gut first. So personally, I learned a lot of the foundational stuff um, off Brian Walsh. Yeah, but he's good. He's good. And I, I think the, the best thing about Brian Walsh is he he delivers like highly complex topics in like such an interpretable manner. Um, it's it's just yeah, it's it's very easy to take on board. Yeah, and I think like look, all these areas you can break down massively. So like gut, like the areas of the gut. Like if I was looking at um, the different mechanisms. Personally, I don't know what I'd say there because that's something I've always dug into myself through textbooks and books and stuff like that. But if I was looking at something like the microbiome, I don't think I could narrow that to one person because it, like that's like there's like a bunch of people that I'd love to learn from. And I plan on, but the um, it's like well, I suppose Will Bolshevitz is one, like Doctor B. He's just a dude, and I love his, his chilled out approach to it. Um, He's now a muscle mentor as well. Legend. Um, the guy that we mentioned in that episode, Rob Nikes, he's like one of the lead researchers in the microbiome itself. Um, uh, there's a guy called Stephen Sandberg Lewis, who's pretty cool. Um, Elizabeth Seibecker, both of those two specialize in SIBO, and they're absolute legends, especially Elizabeth Seibecker. She's just a complete character could listen to it all day um and uh who else yeah i mean that that's probably the gut but then again like there's so many different areas it's just pretty cool um and then mechanics wise what do you reckon the only person i've learned off is uh michael yeah michael Gordon in michael integra if you're if you're in UK London based, then if you have if you're interested in mechanics and you haven't gone to Integra and you haven't learned from Michael, you're full. Um, <laughs> these and then Tom Purvis, um, who's the originator of RTS um, in in America, Oak Claimer, who's quite a mind. Um, and then my one of my mentors, um, Jacques Taylor, who uh, uh, runs myotopia though i think he's rebranded to um comprehensive neuromuscular preparation but he's like an absolute wizard when it comes to not only understanding mechanics but combining that with um like the neuroscience side of things so he's really dug in there which is pretty cool um and then it's also i mean there's some guys in um chicago called precision human performance that she michelle um who runs that um trained with michael gordon um and she's also an rts wizard and she she's pretty jack she's pretty cool she is jack isn't she um yeah i mean like mechanics wise boom you got it and then physiology strength training programming I mean, those are hard ones. Programming is something I, I, I don't, sounds really bad, but I, I like, I don't know if I ever want to have to get a mentor in that because it's an area that I like to kind of explore and figure stuff out on my own. Mm. Um, I'll, I'll always like look up, look up different approaches and, and ways of doing stuff, but that's an area that I, I figure I, don't, I never want to have to go to someone who can just tell me this is how you should program everyone because that will never be the case. Yeah, 
was like I, I like the whole thing of let's learn about the human body and then try and apply that to our own clients in a way that we believe is right and wrong and then kind of figure out figure out how it goes in this case of like all this stuff is like we're all scientists and this, which is something that Jacques Taylor always says you know we're all running experiments all the time and it's a case of you come up with a hypothesis you have a client you run it you, you know you run the experiment and you see what happens um, I think from a programming perspective it is like you learn your mechanics and then anatomy and then it kind of comes together doesn't it yeah and then and then it's going to be individuals you get some people where you 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 go in at a certain level of volume and you got to go up you got to go down based on how they're responding um you know there's there's a whole host of stuff and i think that's where just the experience of doing it is going to be more valuable than ever getting a mentor to go through it yeah um, yeah but yeah so you basically do that one and then strength training i don't know if that's specifically looking at strength sports i'm not at all interested in that personally pass pass um and then business ed my lap <laughs> guys are fucking legends <laughs> <laughs> hasn't heard of a guy called Ed Milet. He has a wicked podcast, and he's like, he's kind of like a Tony Robbins esque, but he just is an incredible. Oh, Tony Robbins is a fucking legend as well. Yeah, and like some, you know, Bedrose Coolian as well. You know, they're cool. They're cool guys that have some cool stories, and you know, whether they're specifically talking about business or not, they're just quite inspiring figures, and they're good people to to kind of immerse yourself in via social media, personally. Uh, I don't know what you what do you think. Uh, I don't really know. Like business wise, I don't really. I think just be really good at what you do and then crack on. Yeah, we're we're about to like probably come up against a load of business hurdles and then <laughs> we'll both regret what we just said. <laughs> business wise, there's like be very good at what you do, communicate well. Be good at building relationships. Don't be a dick, and then you can't really go wrong. Exactly. And know, know when to be ruthless. <laughs> know when to be ruthless. Know when to not be ruthless. Yeah. And uh, yeah, stand by principles. I think that's pretty much it. Yeah. But yeah, that's that. I enjoyed that question. I like it. That was a good question. That it was from Odran, wasn't it? Yeah. I don't know how to pronounce his name. How do you pronounce it? I just say Odran. I don't know. If, I've coached him for like a year. I just say that every time. So if it's wrong, he's never he's never corrected me. Sweet. He's top guy. Um, Anyone's in Australia listening to this, he works at Doherty's gym. So go and PT with him. Oh, what a legend! Absolute lad. Um, we'll probably leave it. I think that's been forty-five minutes. Yeah, that's forty-five there. We, we we had a good question earlier from the guy Jonesy zero three eight, but. And I told him I'd try and answer it, but we'll save that for next time. Okay. That was a good question. Um, that's sweet. We've got Jake on Tuesday. Yeah, we're getting, so we're getting Jake Carter on. Just to find again Carter. Um, go through the microbiome again, like in, 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 from a different angle. Um, and uh, I mean, we're basically aiming to get a few guests on to round out this series because we, we've we, we know a few people that all have different ways of looking at it and it should be pretty cool. Mm. So, yeah. Sweet. That was good. Yeah. I hope you all enjoyed it. Yeah. And uh, obviously, it goes without saying, I always forget to say this, you know, all the uh, 
the information that we just discussed is information purposes only and you know if you're going to implement any of it um consult your healthcare practitioner prior to doing so and don't inject your melatonin tonight still take it bilingually and heat it on a spoon uh, <laughs> <laughs> crystallize it and crush it up <laughs> um, but yeah like you know me and cal aren't healthcare professionals so this is just a like I said, two guys having a chat and we just happen to be recording it. So, yeah. Good stuff. All right. Thanks for listening, guys. We will speak to you on, well, we'll record Tuesday, drop that either Tuesday night or Wednesday um, and go from there. Awesome. Ciao. Ciao for now. <laughs>